Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their efforts to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, uh, our focus today is on one of the most critically important and rapidly advancing issues in healthcare today. It has wide and deep impact on our health, uh, the health of our communities, and quite honestly, the health of the American economy. And that is the issue of employer-based healthcare. And so I am uh, so incredibly, um, uh, feel so incredibly fortunate to have uh, a guest on our show today who's so expert in this area, David Chase. Uh, Dave began his career outside of healthcare in startups as a founder and in consulting roles with numerous startups. He also played a leadership role and a founding role in launching two uh, $1 billion businesses with Microsoft uh, and also launched uh, a $2 billion healthcare platform business within Microsoft. He then moved on to co-found and become the CEO of Avado, one of Startup Health's first portfolio companies, which was acquired by WebMD in 2013 and integrated into Medscape, which is one of the most widely used healthcare professional sites. Uh, he then went on in 2014 to co-author a book. It's titled Engage, Transforming Healthcare Through Digital Patient Engagement. This book won the Healthcare Book of the Year for HIMSS, the Healthcare Information Management System Society. In 2016, he uh, very publicly shared his perspective on medic, uh, American healthcare with a TEDx talk entitled Healthcare Stole the American Dream, Here's how we take it back, which sums up healthcare's devastation of the middle class and the redemption coming via bottom-up movement. Uh, he's uh, he's an executive producer on a film which hasn't come out yet. It's called The Big Heist. It's the first nonpartisan uh, satirical film to address uh, healthcare in America. He's also co-founded uh, Health Rosetta, which we're going to get into quite a bit, and so I'll leave it up to him to explain what that is. Most recently, he's uh, published a book uh, entitled The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream, How to Deliver World-Class Healthcare to Your Employees at Half the Cost. Dave Chase has been named one of the most influential people in digital health due to his entrepreneurial success, his speaking, and his writing. He is incredibly knowledgeable, experienced, successful, highly prolific, as you can tell. And I think you'll hear very passionate about sharing his views, particularly on how on how high-performing employers uh, have solved uh, healthcare's toughest challenges. Uh, I can't tell you how excited I am to have Dave on this program. Dave, how are you today? Doing great. Looking forward to the chat. Dave, you know, I, I will say, I, you know, I obviously been doing some research on you, read your book, which, by the way, um, I didn't think I was going to enjoy as much as I did, but I just found it to be so incredibly informative and helpful, and as well as your Health Rosetta website. So I, I definitely want to endorse your book. Um, having just finished it, I, I got it earmarked and questions all over it. So thank you for the book. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, probably by the time this airs, there will be a new edition out that actually adds a few chapters that we may end up talking about one or two of those topics. So uh, good timing on our chat. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to, to, to talk about it and to read uh, the, the new chapters you're, you're going to add to it. So let's jump in. And 
Dave, I want to ask you before we get into uh, you spend most of your the the time, the exposure uh, talking about solutions and um, very, very helpful. And we're going to get into that with Health Rosetta. But before we do that, I just want I want you to help uh, lay a lay a, a platform for what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Obviously, you've spent years working on this and, and are incredibly prolific in terms of generating solutions and, and, and getting a message out there. Uh, so in your book, and you just you come out swinging in chapter one, it's entitled America Has Gone to War for, for Far Less. Uh, chapter nine, uh, it's entitled, and I assume this is targeted to employers, you run a healthcare business, whether you like it or not. And so what's the impact of healthcare uh, on our society, our infrastructure? Tell, tell us why this is such a big problem. Yeah, it is. I mean, you look at um, things at a couple different levels. You know, if you bring it down to the personal family level, we have a situation, and I think it really explains a lot of the unrest that we have in our society. I mean, I just share how, you know, we have 20 years, over 20 years of wage stagnation and decline, overwhelmingly, at least 95% generated by uh, healthcare costs. And, you know, if we were seeing our lifespans double over that time period, we might say that's a, a good trade-off. But the implications uh, that fall out of that are really significant. And the math just doesn't work. You have 60% of the workforce makes less than $20 an hour. Today, the average family of four premiums are over $20,000. Because of healthcare costs, over half of households have less than $1,000 in savings. And we now have over half the workforce has over $1,000 deductible. And so you're just a bad stub toe away from financial ruin. Um, and you can understand why that's created a lot of anxiety. Now, you, you pull back and you look at societal implications. Bill Gates devoted an entire TED Talk to how healthcare is devastating education budgets. And, you know, things that were paid for by taxes when you and I were a kid are now, you know, the I, I'm seeing kids at, at the schools around us, you know, raising money, selling candy bars, not to, you know, pay for some band trip, but to pay for core academic programs. Um, and that's, that's the level it's come to. So it is really significant. As you say, I don't pull any punches, uh, in the book. And it's become very clear to me that there is no greater threat to America than the status quo healthcare system. And in terms of immediate threat, certainly there are some long-term threats out there as well, uh, but it's that stark. And I think as you uh, read the book, I think you can see why I make that point. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you definitely point out some statistics that are really uh, startling and um, stark. Uh, for one, you talk about uh, in chapter four, the millennials uh, who are going to revolutionize health benefits and healthcare. Uh, you know, I, uh, prior to, to reading your book, I, I, I hadn't really ever thought of millennials and health benefits in the same breath, but you make it really clear. Uh, and I think the, the, the stat you, you, quote is that millennials will expect that somewhere around, is it 50% of their income 
is going to pay is go to go to pay for their health care benefits. Is that is that right? Yeah. I mean it's it's I use this iceberg metaphor where, you know, above the surface there's some things that they see in terms of, you know, their co-pays and, and some of that. A lot of it's below the surface. I actually was pulling data from a great book written by David Goldhill, situation for millennials in that this the stat you outlined is actually an optimistic view, if you can imagine that, where half of their lifetime earnings, if healthcare costs grow at only half the rate of inflation, which I don't think has ever happened, usually grows far faster than inflation. You know, if it just grows at the rate of inflation, two thirds of their lifetime earnings will go to healthcare. And this is, you know, through Medicare taxes, their employer premiums. It's the totality of what we're spending on healthcare. I mean, so in effect, if we don't change the course we're on, they will be indentured servants to the healthcare system, which is just um, kind of mind-boggling to think about. And I really don't believe that will happen. The change will happen. I mean, I think there would be riots in the street before that happened. Uh, and you already see it in kind of related areas where things that we all want, whether it's smartphones or better food. Uh, you know, millennials are the early adopters and, you know, so-called big food and big soda have actually had their worst earnings in decades over the last couple of years. And it's attributed to millennials, you know, as they've woken up to the implications of, you know, the food-like substances that they've been eating and the health effects of that. That's really changing things. And I think that now that the oldest millennials are leaving the invincible stage of life that we've all gone through, where, you know, unless you're unfortunate to have had a childhood disease, you really don't pay attention to health care until probably mid-30s-ish when you have your own kids, maybe your your own health issues. And uh, I often joke that health care is, is designed perfectly for millennials. That is, if you do the exact opposite of what we do in our healthcare system. So I do believe they uh, will drive things. They're the largest generation in history, and they're also today already the largest single chunk of the workforce if you break it down by generation. So I think it's being greatly underestimated the impact that they will have. Uh, not only on the broad society, but on healthcare specifically. Mm-hmm. And 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 I've I've read those stats elsewhere as well. Um, the World Health Organization talks about the, the similar impact uh, global world product, and uh, by 2030, even if we don't make a, some major changes. Um, it, it, healthcare costs will consume over 50% uh, as well uh, on a global level of, of income generation. So uh, I think it's very consistent with the stats that you, you, you're quoting. Now, you also talk about, um, and, and, and what you, you mentioned in terms of the impact on the infrastructure of communities and, and counties and states is we, we've seen this happen uh, in, in many states. Uh, I spent some time in Massachusetts, and it was a fact of life there that uh, healthcare costs were, were just really uh, sucking dry every other aspect, including, as you were talking about, uh, education, but also uh, infrastructure issues, you know, bridges and roads and, and uh, fire departments and police departments. So it's, it's a major issue for our, for our infrastructure. It, you've talked about the costs of healthcare to employers. What, um, 
why why should employers be concerned what you know how big uh, uh you know budget item is healthcare and and how much are they spending and how much could they save just to give give us a, a kind of a high level perspective on that generally it's the second or third biggest cost for most um companies so it's a huge cost one time once upon a time it wasn't but the power of compound interest you know year over year you see 5 to 15% increases for 20 30 years that adds up. Um, and, uh, you know, most employers do care about the well-being of their employees. And, you know, again, the industry has kind of uh, just said the solution is just to put the, the burden on the employees. And as I shared with those numbers earlier, the math just doesn't work on that. Um, and what we've done with the Health Rosetta is basically simply rolled up the many, many, many examples, rural, urban, small employers, large employers, uh, public sector, private sector, the folks who've cracked the code. And you see these organizations with some of the absolute best benefits packages in the country spending 20, 30, even over 50% less per capita. That's what happens when you're smart. Uh, and the impact is significant for of course, the employees, if the dollars, because employers are spending a lot more on employees than they did 20 years ago. The problem is all the money's gone to pay for health care. And so that's why you have this the wage stagnation. But it's also something that impacts company profitability. If you want to just put, put it in sort of, you know, financial industry terms, uh, you know, there is an employer, you know, sort of a counterexample, large multinational tire manufacturer that just implemented one smart musculoskeletal disorder uh, program, that alone is having a significant impact on their overall com- company profitability. When you look at by the time they're complete uh, and they're about a third of the way there, that will have a 5% profit impact. That translates into about a $2 billion market cap from one program proper musculoskeletal management program. So it, it, of course, most importantly, it's that that human level and the financial devastation that it's caused. And we're the undisputed world leaders in medical bill driven bankruptcy. Um, but, you know, if you do want to just look at it as a CFO, it's very significant as well. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you shifted over to uh, solutionizing because um, I definitely want to take the conversation away from the or out of the, the problem phase into the solutions. And the Health Rosetta website, and, and I would urge folks if there's you know anyone who's listening who's uh, uh, in, in in employer health or employee health or benefits uh, or just uh, if you're interested in it, this is this site is really fantastic. I, I guess I want to just start off by asking you, um, what is the Health Rosetta? Who who is you know it's an it's a nonprofit. Uh, what does it do? What's its mission? Who who are the customers you're trying to serve and what value are you trying to deliver uh, to them through this Health Rosetta? I like analogies. It, they tend to explain things for me. And so a couple analogies I will use is one is think Wikipedia, you know, where it's kind of an open source, uh, you know, encyclopedia. And so this is like that. It's not open source in terms of software code that some people may be familiar with, like a Linux, but it's the content, you know, capturing these best practices, making sure that everybody has full ability to see those. 
Um, the other analogy that I draw that I think is quite apt here is uh, LEED. You may be familiar with LEED certified buildings. You know, you go into, say, a, a hospital or an office building or a school, and you'll see this insignia in the window that says, you know, this is a LEED certified gold building. And LEED is essentially a blueprint for how to build and maintain buildings in sort of a sustainable fashion. And so the Health Rosetta is basically a blueprint for how to purchase and deliver healthcare smart. And like LEED, there's education and certification programs uh, that, you know, allow that, um, you know, things to change. Also like LEED, I think it's a pretty good analogy in that real estate, kind of that built infrastructure that LEED was focused in on, you know, it wasn't like there was this day that all the old buildings got leveled and all these green built buildings went up the next day. You know, it was a 10 to 20 year journey. And healthcare is kind of that same way. It's not like all this stuff happens overnight. Uh, it's more that the old wanes over time, the new rises over time. And not to say there wasn't a lot going on 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago with LEED, but you know, it took 20 years to it to fully sort of ripple through the entire industry. Um, and there were certain geographies that stepped up earlier than others. And we see the same thing. There's uh, people doing all kinds of stuff that is really community changing and life changing for people. And there's no reason why they can't do it today. Um, but we know it's it takes a while. And there will be particular geographies just like lead that step up earlier than others. And uh, and then things will play out from there. And in 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 on your website and in your book you you talk about um a few big ticket items you very clearly clearly outline uh some things that employers uh can do and and it seems to me again just to kind of make sure i understand this but the it seems to me your target audience with health rosetta and your book is is actually employers my is there any other customer base you're you're targeting or is it pretty much employers that's certainly the focus today. Um, if you look at the Health Rosetta really long term, there's really very little about it that's employer or for that matter, U.S. specific. Um, but, you know, we're biting off enough as it is. And so our primary focus today is on the U.S. employer market. Mm -hmm. And and you you give uh, uh, numerous examples, vignettes of success stories, both in your book and, and, and on your website. Um, one in particular comes to mind, the Rosen Hotel and Resorts, where they deployed a number of strategies that, as, as you were pointing out in the other vignette, that really saved them tremendous amounts of, of, of money in terms of healthcare costs. And they were able to use those for uh, other important parts of the company and corporation. So is there a vignette that comes to mind that kind of paints a picture of what good looks like? Yeah. I mean, they are a fantastic example, uh, though, if you look at what they did, it's what a lot of others are doing, such as putting in proper primary care. And, and if I was to summarize a smart benefits plan, mm -hmm. it makes good decisions free or maybe near free. Uh, and it makes bad decisions like you know, going to unsafe, low value hospitals uh, or non-evidence based things, you know, they make those 
frankly expensive, you know, so they're not going to keep somebody from getting some procedure that there's no evidence around, but there's no reason why they should be put in the bill for that. Um, and so the, you know, the, as you alluded to, the results are really amazing. This is not an easy workforce. I mean, just as one data point, uh, 56% of the pregnancies that they have inside their company are categorized high risk. You know, normally that can be a budget buster, not at Rosen because they're smart about how they approach primary care. In this case, uh, you know, the whole prenatal process and the byproduct of this, which they've been doing now for 20 years. So they get the, the, the good side of the power of compound interest, uh, where, they're spending 55% less per capita than a typical employer. And they've taken that money that would have kind of just disappeared into the ether in the healthcare morass and not only have the probably the best health benefits package, you know, where people get this great care. They actually can go, a lot of these individuals, it's a hotelier, uh, are hourly workers. They get to go to the clinic on the clock. They have transportation provided to them if they don't have transportation. And then they take the money that would have otherwise been squandered. And yes, it's helped the business. They've grown tenfold over that period. They haven't had to take on debt. Um, and, uh, but where it really gets compelling is they pay for their employees' kids' college education and the employees' college education after a few years of service. And if that wasn't enough, they adopted a nearby crime-ridden neighborhood and invested in pre-K, uh, daycare, after-school programs. So far, 450 college educations they paid for. Crime went down 62%. High school graduation rates went from 45% to nearly 100%. And the entire cost of that program was less than 5% of what they save compared to a typical employer. So now they're, they're uh, going after another community five times that size. Um, you know, that's what's possible. And, you know, they, that was just one private employer doing that. But, you know, that could be at any level, frankly. I, I so love that story because, it, it, you know, the amount that they're saving, as you said, I mean, that's just – I mean, that's mind blowing to think that you could save that much on healthcare, uh, costs and benefits and then the good that you can do with it. In, in chapter 11, you, you talk about the seven habits of highly effective, uh, benefits professionals. And you, you do start off with, you know, uh, what you call value based primary care and then, uh, proactively managing pharmacy benefits and, and this evidence based medicine approach to musculoskeletal care. Uh, you talk about centers of excellence, uh, focusing on the high cost care, the patients who are, uh, uh more complex chronic, uh, medical conditions that, that are high cost. And then, and then you, you end up with, um, concierge style employee customer service. And so those were, those were at least a few or, or most of the seven habits of highly effective, uh, you know, em, employer uh, benefits, health benefits. Could you say more? Could you unpack some of those? I'm, I'm particularly interested. I'm actually interested in all of them, but which ones would you like to highlight? Because I, I think they're just powerful and the, and the way you explain it in the book is just great. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, you start with the first one in terms of Value-based primary care is in contrast to volume-based primary care. 
Unfortunately, we've done everything imaginable in this country to undermine primary care. So most people don't actually uh, have familiarity with a high-function primary care system. In a high-function primary care system, uh, the issues that people enter the healthcare system for, 92% of the issues can be addressed in a proper primary care setting. And folks like Rosen, you know, live that. Uh, my, you know, I say my, I put my family where my mouth is. I've got our family and my folks in one of these great programs. It's actually less expensive. So it's not like it has to be an expensive thing. Um, and that is so foundational. Unfortunately, our primary care has been turned into, you know, I call it the milk in the back of the store. You know, the, they put milk in the back of the store because it's low margin and it gets you, you know, in and out, if you will, uh, to, to get you to the high margin stuff. And it's the reason, you know, a lot of primary care practices have been gobbled up by health systems is not because they were, quote, good businesses, but they just want to capture referral patterns. Um and they have some pretty extreme incentives to refer internally to things that, uh, you know, may or may not be the, the best way to approach it. And, you know, the, uh, you know, just give you a, a, a little example of that. When I talked to a doc who had made the switch from a multi-specialty clinic to a direct primary care, which is one of these models, and I said, what's this like? You know, how is it different? He said, well, you know, I just had this lady in the last month. Um, I'll tell you what happened versus what would have happened in the old practice. You know, she came in complaining of migraines. In the old practice, more than likely, what I would have done was was ordered a, you know, scan. You know, very unlikely it was a tumor, but it was one way to get her in and out and, in our practice, we needed pretty much average seven minutes per appointment to really, um, you know, they the practice or the organization called it hitting productivity targets. But, you know, it was just basically in order to make uh, a healthy living. And he said, you know, he was finding that he was only using 40 percent of his medical training and he'd have these wars inside of his head that, gosh, if I ask this question to the patient, it's going to lead to this and this conversation. And uh, my so-called productivity numbers will go out the window. And but today, here's what happened. Lady came in, complained of migraines. He asked her, you know, what's going on? Have there been some new stressors in your life? Loss of job or you know, marital difficulties, financial, whatever it might be. And uh, she said, well, you know, actually, my mother-in-law moved in a couple months ago. Um, come to think of it, that's been pretty stressful. And so he said, okay, well, let's, let's do this. Let's set some boundaries, you know, talk to your husband, you know, blah, 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 do these things. Let's see how it goes over the next week or two. You know, if you're still experiencing these migraines, you know, come back in, we'll, we'll get you that, um, or I'll order the, the, the image. Uh, and, uh, but sure enough, she did this, cured the problem. She didn't have to waste another half day, um, taken off of work to sit in a waiting room, uh, you know, with a bunch of sick people, uh, just to let the doctor know that, you know, things were okay. She just emailed them and said, Hey, all's good. Thanks a lot. Really helpful. And, uh, you know, the thing you find, uh, when you talk to a lot of docs, definitely in primary care, but even beyond primary care is 
is uh, they will readily say, you know, two thirds of the time, you don't need to actually come in. I just force you to come in because I only get paid if I see the whites of the eyes of the patient. You know, it's one of the many distortions in our system. And who can blame a doctor? Of course, they need to get paid. Um, but once you remove those distortions with some of these these habits like primary care, um, you know, that's that's certainly one of the areas. Um, you know, I mentioned musculoskeletal management uh, where that's, that's another one of the habits where uh, – you know, Starbucks did a study with Virginia Mason, which is a high quality hospital in Seattle. And in Virginia Mason's words, 90% 9-0 of the spinal procedures they were doing uh, didn't help at all. You know, PT would have been more effective. I mean, just ask, you know, Tiger Woods or Steve Kerr how they feel about, you know, uh, the overdone back procedures. There's many, many of these procedures, there's very little evidence uh, and there's more effective methods of treating them and it's actually one of the bigger on-ramps into the opioid crisis is either people immediately getting prescribed opioids uh, for some pain or they get a procedure that they shouldn't have gotten and then they you know walk out after that you know lumbar fusion or whatever it might be with 90 you know oxy or vicodin or whatever and uh, you know that the uh, opioid crisis is one that uh, you may want to talk about, but that's actually one of the new chapters I added to the new edition of books. I dived real deep onto that actually because of the, the film I'm working on. That's an area that I wanted to really more deeply understand. And it was quite appalling what I found. So those are a couple of the things that, that jumped out at me. Yeah, no, it was really helpful. And how about the, the um, concierge style uh, employee customer service? Why, why is that a big ticket item? Why is that a, a habit of highly effective uh, benefits professionals? Oh, yeah. Good one. Uh, well, healthcare can be confusing. You know, if you're not living it all the time, just knowing how to navigate both the financial side in terms of your benefits, as well as the clinical side, kind of having somebody on your side. Um, uh, it helps to have kind of a, you know, different terms are used. I use concierge. It could be a care navigator or a plan navigator. I mean, an advocate, you know, there's different names, but that's one we're just helping you having somebody on your side, particularly, you know, while we, you know, we were talking about uh, primary care, you know, primary care doc can do a fair bit of that when they're, they're available, but a lot of folks aren't going to have the value-based primary care available right away, you know, as this transition happens. So it's a great area to help you navigate the system. And so, you know, that's why I'm a believer in that. And, you know, that's that's the, one of the common threads as you study the employers who've done a great job. Uh, usually they have that role in, in place. So uh, you do also have one – one of the things I've, I found very helpful is you have a definite – perspective and uh, you support it with uh, quite a bit of literature and research, your point of view on, on workplace wellness programs. And I've had this conversation with many folks uh, and uh, experts and uh, HR benefits managers, and there are lots of reasons to put workplace wellness programs in place, um, uh, you know, one of which is just it's a great selling point, value-added service for, you know, for employers to attract and, and retain employees. But what's, what's your take on it from a dollars and cents perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, there are, I mean, who can argue against wellness, right? That's a great concept. Um, and unfortunately, the term is 
essentially been bastardized. Um, and, you know, certainly the idea of having healthy food options and, and, you know, uh, gym membership, whatever it might be, these things are great. I mean, I think the best wellness is actually having a great primary care. But, um, as you said, there, there are some reasonable programs that are, are nice and they don't do damage. They might not have a clear return on investment. And that's okay if you want to make that investment. Unfortunately, many of the so-called wellness programs, um, are very misguided and they basically end up being sort of a blame the victim, you know, where it's, it's pretty easy if you're not sort of steeped in what's going on in healthcare spending, uh, that one of the, the things that the benefits industry has done is said to decision makers, oh, you know, the problem with healthcare is, you know, you have these overweight or, you know, whatever unhealthy employees. That's why your costs have gone up. Yeah, false. You know, that is actually a pretty small, I mean, that's going to be a problem long term, no doubt. Um, and of course you want to address those issues. But if you actually look at today's healthcare spending, um, that at an employer level, that's the, the pro, the wellness programs have very little effect on those things. Um, with, you know, great primary care can affect those things, but these programs that often just lead to over treatment, you know, they're doing all these, um, uh, biometric studies and man, a lot of these things lead to non-evidence-based interventions and aren't following the, the U.S. Preventive Tax Force recommendations. So they lead to, if they're not done right, and unfortunately many of them aren't done right, uh, they lead to unfortunate effects. Dave, you're, I mean, again, so incredibly prolific and passionate about this and so knowledgeable, uh, and you're, you're, you're pointing out so many challenges uh, in the system I'm just wondering uh, on the flip side, what does, what does good look like to Dave Chase? If, if uh, Rosetta, Health Rosetta is going to take off, people are going to be using it. Um, you, you build this movement. What, what does it look like five, 10 years from now? Uh, what, what, is, what is the alternative to the direction we're going in? Yeah, it's something, at some level, it's an expansion, massive replication of the sorts of things that arose in hotels and some of the other case studies like Pittsburgh schools where they're spending 40% less. The, you know, same co- basics we've been talking about, having proper primary care, having high quality, great outcome uh, procedure centers, having concierge type service. Um, but, you know, where it gets, um, you know, really impactful societal wise is Essentially, as you were mentioning, like with Massachusetts, but it's basically every state where dollars have been hoovered out of what are called the social determinants of health and out of family incomes. Mm. When that um, tide turns, like you saw at a microcosm with Rosen, then, you know, you can have just breathtaking things happen. You know, in Pittsburgh, uh, if you look at the cohort of kindergartners in the Pittsburgh area, during their K-12 years, there'll be $2 billion more available than their counterparts in Philly because they're doing smart stuff. So that translates into smaller class sizes. Teachers are paid better, four times as many librarians. 
um, better benefits for the teachers. Uh, so those types of things just get replicated. And, you know, our belief is that, uh, as I was talking about a little bit with the lead, that this will happen community by community. And uh, the common thread is it will be locally driven and it will be driven um, in a very open source way. And it will once again support more independent um, organizations. You know, that's not the conventional wisdom. Uh, you know, everybody thinks, and, and certainly the, the ACA in a lot of ways incentivize massive consolidation. And, you know, to his credit, one of the framers of that, Bob Kocher, um, who's now a venture capitalist, you know, had a op-ed in Wall Street Journal last six months, basically said, you know, how I was wrong about Obamacare and specifically was talking about he thought that the way to go was, uh, you know, these mega health systems would be the, the solution. And, you know, in reality and where he's investing today is quite the opposite of that. It's supporting the independent medical practice that is actually where you're seeing the best outcomes and best value. And so the pendulum, I believe, will swing back and doctors can be doctors. Unfortunately, you know, we have a situation today, record levels of burnout, even suicide. Doctors are spending two hours on bureaucracy for every one hour of patient time. That's not why they, you know dedicated many, many years of training and a large amount of money to become glorified billing clerks. So when not, doctors can be doctors, nurses can be nurses, um, it's a whole different ball game and it's, and it's happening. Just not, it's not yet the dominant thing. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the beauty here is, is you can see these models working all over the country. Uh, it's just not the predominant thing yet. Well, I, I think you painted a, a great picture of what you see uh, good to, to, to look like in the future. You know, one interesting thing you mentioned, which I'd never pieced together um, until you just said it, and you talked about Massachusetts and other states where uh, as, as the cost of health care rises, uh, the, the money is drained from uh, uh, other areas, including um, social determinants of health. And we know that that's uh, social determinants of health, in fact, are, are a huge, uh, probably the biggest um, factor in terms of uh, utilization of healthcare and healthcare costs in general. And so it, it almost seems like a, a, a spiral, you know, as more money is diverted to pay for healthcare, uh, less money goes into the uh, social care, those social determinants of health increase and therefore increase the healthcare costs. And so it seems like a vicious cycle, which I actually never visualized until you said what you said a moment ago. Uh, how do you see, as, as part of your vision of the future, do you see that also being part of it, that more money can be diverted back into uh, improving uh, these uh, social uh, determinants of health? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's what you start to see. I mean, certainly the education is one of those. And, uh, you know, we've, or I guess we're beating up on Massachusetts, but it's, it's kind of a good example in that on the one hand, it's held up as, uh, kind of a shining example of the best of our system. And, and there are certainly pockets of brilliance there. And, and certainly we're very thankful when there's events like, uh, you know, the marathon bombing and all that. At the same time, we need to look at it in uh, a complete view. You know, when I was in Boston recently, there was 
essentially what amounted to be kind of like a student strike where kids were not going to school because they were protesting more and more and more cuts to the schools. And, and then I was, um, seeing these different areas and there's this area that is referred to as methadone mile. It's basically ground zero for the opioid crisis. And, you know, literally it's in the shadow of gleaming billion dollar medical centers. And, you know, these things aren't disconnected. You know, there's not this magic separate bucket of money where healthcare is paid that uh, comes, you know, comes from. So there's all these other things it comes out of. And so, yeah, that's what you see. And, and there are some programs that I think hold great promise where uh, a community, if they do a good job, they can retain those dollars and turn around and invest it into education or social services or uh, mental health services or any number of things, um, you know, certainly economic opportunity. Uh, all those things have, uh, you know, in aggregate, a more significant impact on health outcomes than clinical care. It's only 10 to 20% of health outcomes are driven by clinical care, but it's consuming 90% of the dollars. And so, of course, clinical care is going to be more expensive, but not, it doesn't need to be that, the 90 10, you know, relationship. Uh, that's just really out of hand. So, so Dave, you, you've sold me. You, you clearly have articulated how serious this problem is in so many ways and, um, how dire the situation can be if we don't reverse it. And you have this health rosetta and, uh, you have a, a lot of examples, um, of what, of what a, a, a smart employer can do. Uh, and these, uh, you know, seven habits or, or multiple habits of highly effective uh, benefit professionals. So what, what's your call to action? How could I, uh, as an individual, an employee, an employer, how can I use what you're offering to make a change? What, what, what can an individual or a professional who's in employee health uh, or in benefits, what, how do we, how do we uh, access Health Rosetta or your services? Yeah. Great question. Really, the tip of the spear for us, I alluded to earlier, which was the, um, you know, these Vanguard benefits advisors that are worth their weight in gold that are really guiding uh, employers to the next uh, era of healthcare. And so we've certified these folks. They're the ones who uh, are professional and experienced and fully disclose their how they're paid very upfront about it. That is really where you need to start. I think it's probably the single most underestimated role in the entire healthcare system. You know, because you consider that uh, employers in aggregate spend about 50% of the healthcare dollars, but probably represent 80% of the industry profits. Um, and largely, employers defer to their benefits broker or consultant. Um, Unfortunately, it's been largely to their peril, um, but that's where, you know, you go to our site, we have a Who We Are page and list the certified advisors and there's some forms you can fill out so we connect, uh, you know, people up with these folks. And that's really the place to start because if you don't have that, uh, it's such an uphill battle because the, you know, there are three trillion reasons protecting the status quo. A lot of people making a lot of money. And so, you know, the, you know, there's two ways to 
freeze status quo. One is to politicize a topic. Yeah. That's pretty easy to do with healthcare. Mm-hmm. Number two is use fear, uncertainty, and doubt to freeze healthcare. And so, you know, if somebody says, oh, it's too risky to do this or to go self-insured or, you know, this is just not possible, um, it's very clear you're working with the wrong person because if you have the right resource, this stuff is, it's not putting a man on the moon by any means. It's a straightforward process. Uh, you know, you want to be thoughtful about it. You don't do all the things, you know, overnight, day one. There's thoughtful ways to roll it out. Um, and so as long as you're working with the right people, you know, you can, you can readily do that. Mm-hmm. So, so Dave, I, I, uh, we have a, just a few minutes left and I've been wondering about this, um, actually, as I've been looking at your bio and, and reading about you and reading your book. So you are super talented, super skilled. You could be doing a lot of things right now. And, um, uh, that would be probably a lot less frustrating than trying to reverse some of the healthcare dilemma uh, in in this country and and across the globe. And so, I, I guess my question is, why are you devoting? Uh, it seems a large part of your life uh, and and work life to this issue of remaking the healthcare ecosystem. Well, I mean, I was fortunate um, to be raised by great parents, and you know, they taught me values of of you know, integrity and generosity and humility and, you know, the, you know, and using your, your talents for good. And, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, by the time I was 35, I had 11 friends who died young, you know, they're my age or younger. And I saw how the financial ruin was piled on top of tremendous grief And, uh, you know, I really decided this was, I happen to have knowledge here. Probably my most unique skill set is I'm a a very much, some people call it a systems entrepreneur. I think of it as an industry ecosystem thinker and shifter. Um, and so it's something where, uh, people tend to overestimate what they can do in the short term and underestimate when what they can do in the long term. Uh, and so this is now my calling and, and something that's the work of my life. And, you know, I'm bound determined to leave things better, uh, for my kids than they, they are today and see things on a really bad path if we don't change that. And, uh, yeah, of course there's lots of, um, dysfunction we've talked about. Uh, but, I am just lit up every day by people doing incredible things. It's not like, you know, this is me going, sitting on the top of some mountain and dreaming up stuff. Uh, this is people making it happen every day, doing incredible things, changing lives, saving lives, saving money. Um, and so it's really easy to get up every day and work with people, you know, and, and this movement started with a few of us and then dozens of us and then hundreds of us. And now it's, it's thousands, you know, we need to get to millions ultimately. Um, but we're on a great path. And, um, I mean, these are the, you know, you think about the people that, uh, became nurses and doctors, you know, at least my experience was, these were the the smartest, most passionate, gratification delaying people mm-hmm. that I knew, um, and unfortunately, the the status quo system 
has sort of, you know, is sort of taking a piece of their soul away every day. Um, and then you, but then you see the people broken out of it. And when they are unshackled, unbelievable, like what they can do. And I've seen it firsthand with my folks. You know, they're in a great Medicare Advantage program with one of these great next generation. Uh, and to say something good about Boston, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the organization they're a part of is, is uh, headquartered in Boston. Just amazing what's going on there. And it's one of those things where it's actually less expensive. Uh, you know, my mom had a so-called rich benefits plan from, you know, being a retired teacher, but rich doesn't mean good. And I see it and it's like, wow, it's less expensive. It's far better. The nurses are happier. The doctors are happier. I mean, it's just a win. And so that makes it really easy to be passionate about it and say, gosh, everybody deserves this, you know this is entirely possible. Um, and so that's where I put my focus. Yeah, I'm aware of, of the problems and I'm not afraid to call them out. Uh, but 99% of my energy goes to how on earth do we replicate much faster all the great stuff that's going on. Mm -hmm. Dave, what um, in your work, and you may have already touched upon this, but is there something that you're most proud of and and, and I think, you know, again, I think your vision is quite significant and profound. I think you, you talk, I know in your book, you talk about this healthcare 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and this progression of taking the best from the past, which I, I really love the way you emphasize that, um, that this is something that's going to take time and it's not about destroying. It's really about, you know, just taking, you know, really appreciating what works and then just, you know, building on that and emphasizing that to, to create this, you know, this uh, future of healthcare that is, uh, that is not dire. And so what, 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 what is there something that comes to mind that you you feel really good about in terms of the work that you and your colleagues uh, have done? I would say that at least what comes to mind right away is on a, you know, reasonably regular basis, I will, uh, it, it might be in person or it might be some blog post and somebody says, hey, I read your thing. I learned about something like direct primary care. That's one I've, I wrote the seminal paper on that a handful of years ago. Um, and I made the change and my life is so much better. My patient's lives is so much better. Everybody's winning. Thank you so much. Um, and so that's something where you see these sort of unshackled docs in particular, you know, where they're able to actually practice medicine the way they're trained and, and, and then some uh, versus in this very constrained environment. And so those types of stories, and then you hear some of the end patient stories like the, I have a story in, in the book about um, a benefits director getting hugged at a, a football game because this family would have been in financial ruin if they had, because the, the dad had to have a procedure and they just didn't have the money to pay, you know, to make up the deductible that would have been in the old PPO high deductible plan. But because they went to a high quality uh, center, uh, literally there was going to be, because this was, um, you know, in the fall, November timeframe, literally there were going to be presents under the Christmas tree 
at that family, not financial ruin. Like you hear those stories, that's mm-hmm. pretty easy to, to, you know, feel good about the progress we're making and, you know, a lot more to come. Um, but when you see professionals and the positive impact on them, you see the end patient impact, you know, that's very gratifying. Yeah, it's got to be, it's got to be gratifying. That's a heartwarming uh, story. What I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one last question, which I ask, uh, try to ask uh, our, every guest is, what was the best piece of advice you were ever given? I would say find a void, fill it. That was something I got pretty early in my professional career. You know, you come into the adult world and you think the adults have it all figured out. And uh, you realize that the adult world's even more broken than the, the uh, kids' world in a lot of ways. Um, and so that was one where it's like, just seize the day. Uh, if you see something that's a gap or it's broken, just go make it happen. Um, and that was, for me at least, uh, pretty empowering and certainly something that vaulted my career where I'd had a, I've had a lot of um, sort of uncharted territory that I've gone into. Uh, and I've become very comfortable with that, you know, because of that type of advice. I, I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to share that with my kids, find a void and fill it. Um, well, Dave, I, I want to sincerely thank you for being a part of uh, creating new healthcare and bringing us your really super fresh perspectives and really bold solutions. I, um, I, you know, I just, uh, you know, I think you call it like it is. And at the same time, you also really deliver in terms of uh, solutions and, and a real practical, sustainable approach to creating a new healthcare. So I just want to thank you sincerely for that. My pleasure. And I do, as always, want to just thank our listeners who, uh, many of whom are, are actually doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients and supporting those who take care of patients. Um, I, I sincerely hope this has been as exciting uh, for uh, for the listeners and catalyzing as, as it has been for me. And then finally, I just want to say to the listeners, um, you know, I, I have been getting an increasing amount of uh, feedback uh, through emails, which I truly appreciate. Uh, and my email address is znewworth at gmail.com. And you can see how that's spelled in uh, the uh, show notes uh, on iTunes or Google Play. And uh, please keep the comments coming. Um, also, if you could rate and comment on the podcast series, subscribe to it and share with others, that would be greatly appreciated. And so um, so I just want to thank you again for your very, very encouraging responses over the past uh, few weeks. So until the next episode, uh, be well.